Let's open our Bibles this morning to uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8. We've been taking our time going through this uh, chapter. There's a lot here. And if you remember, uh, in the very first part of this chapter, Jesus, he had just finished with the Sermon on the Mount, and he comes into chapter 8, and he is actually in the area of Capernaum, which we will look at on the map this morning, and we will see where that is located. It was a place where Jesus made his, um, really his headquarters when he was, during the time that he ministered in Galilee. But you remember in those first uh, few verses, in verses uh, one through four, Jesus heals a leper. And then in verses five through four, 13, we saw how Jesus had healed a centurion servant, this Gentile man who had a servant, and Jesus heals him. And, and, and the Jews are, are so not really excited about Jesus, their Messiah, healing anybody but their own. And, and yet here, God, Jesus, shows himself to be the Messiah, the God of all. He's the Lord over all. And that word in the Greek means all. Right? It's not just for a limited few people. It's for all. That means Jews, Gentiles, everything in between. Uh, and actually, I, that's all there is. There's Jews and there's Gentiles. And so Jesus makes it very clear through these chapters. And remember, Matthew's gospel is not written chronologically for us. And I think we've talked about that before. It's written for us thematically, which means that there are a lot of events that are not quite in order because Matthew's idea, his whole uh, thrust behind the gospel of Matthew is to present Jesus not only as the Messiah, the, king, the God of the universe, who he is, he's God in the flesh, but also as the rightful king to the throne of David. And that's why in the very beginning chapters we see this genealogy of Jesus proving that he is from the line of, you know, from Abraham to Isaac to, to Jacob and then from Judah and then to David and finally down to Jesus. And so, and, and so Matthew wants to prove that he is the Messiah. And so the Jews knew that if he's the Messiah, then he's going to have control over all things. He's going to be able to heal the sick. And certainly we saw in the first few, uh, several verses actually in chapter 8, how he did. He healed the leper. He healed the centurion's servant. He even healed Peter's mother-in-law. Remember that in Capernaum. And then it says that he healed many. And then we looked at the cost of discipleship. And there is a cost to discipleship in Jesus. You know, you may go to a, an event where there's an evangelist, and the evangelist will say, well, come to Jesus and all your bills will be paid. Come to Jesus and all of your troubles will go away. Come to Jesus and everything will get better. Now, those are half-truths. Yes, it is true that come to Jesus and all your real troubles will ultimately be solved because ultimately we know we're going to be in glory with him, right? Right? But the fact that he, whether he pays all my bills, whether I go, and go through any hardship now or not, is not really the, the truth, because believers as well as unbelievers go through difficulties. God causes his sun to shine on the just and the unjust. And so none of us are absolved from any hardships in this world. In fact, the Bible tells us that for all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, we haven't suffered it so much in this country, but the first century church did. Many of them gave their lives for the gospel that you and I hold in our hands. And maybe you've been overlooked for a, a promotion at work. Maybe you've been uh, looked down upon. Maybe you have had family members shun you, or maybe even people that you know or love call you names because you're somehow holier now than thou. And, and we know that that's not true but I serve a God who's holy, and you serve a God who's holy, right? He's above all. He's above all. And so we looked at that idea of the cost of discipleship because there is a cost. It's not what people think. And we ought not to give a wrong idea of what discipleship really is. There is sacrifice on our parts. There is going to be persecution. It's not going to be all pie in the sky and gravy train. It's not going to be that way for us. But ultimately it will be. 
But I don't know about you, but even as a Christian serving Christ now in this generation, I find myself in a wonderful place because I not only get to live for Christ now, which is such a glorious thing for me. It's, it's, it's something I would rather do than anything else in the world. I mean, give the CEOs, give them all their positions with all their money. I could care less about any of that. But you and I have this treasure this gospel message, because that's the only thing that changes the human heart. Money does not change the human heart for the better. It does change the human heart, though, doesn't it? Oftentimes it does. That's why the Bible says that it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. Not money itself, because that's just a thing. Money can be used for good or ill, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And yet here we are. So I find it a great joy to be a servant of God. And, and hopefully, I know all of us are at to some point or another. And so now we get into this section in verse 23 through 34. And let's just read it through and then we'll go back and take a look at it. Notice what it says in verse 23. It says, now when he, Jesus, got into a boat, and again, they're on the western side of the Galilee in Capernaum. He got into a boat, and his disciples followed him, and suddenly, notice, a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. And then his disciples came to him and woke him, and saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? And then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, Who can this be, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And so when he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, meaning the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or the Lake of Gennesaret, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding, and so the demons begged him. Notice, the demons begged Jesus. Who's in control here? But I'll, I digress later. The demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And so when they had come out, <clears throat> excuse me, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. And then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Yes, they begged him to depart from their region. They didn't want Jesus there any longer. And so, as we looked at verses 23 through the end of the chapter, we saw that Jesus not only had power over sickness and disease, as we saw in the first parts of this chapter. We now see that he also has power over nature. Over nature and over the forces of evil. Yes, the invisible realm that we can't see. Jesus has control over it all. He knows what is in the darkness that we can't see. He can see the things that we can't see with our eyes. But remember that Jesus is Lord over all. Lord over all. And he's God. What does the Bible tell us in John's Gospel, chapter 1? It says, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos in the Greek. He is the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Do you understand that whoever this Word is is equal to God and is God? And then it goes on in verse 14. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, who is that? Who is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us? It's Jesus. And then in John's first letter, in 1 John 5, verse 7, it says that there are three that bear record or witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. We're all comfortable with the saying, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Well, Father, Word is the same thing as the Son, Jesus. The Word is equal with God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And so Jesus is God. And if Jesus is the Messiah come in human flesh, God come in human flesh, then he would also have ultimate control and authority over all things. And we will see that clearly demonstrated this morning. Notice with me in verse 23, it says, Now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. Now Jesus was in a boat traveling from Capernaum, which is on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And he was traveling, he was traveling from Capernaum, going to the eastern side of the lake where Jesus had divine appointments waiting Divine appointments waiting. A divine appointment are events or circumstances in our lives, whether we know about them ahead of time or not, but they that have far-reaching and eternal significance. Those are divine appointments. You and I have them. And Jesus had them. He had to go across the lake from Capernaum, where the fishing village was, where he, he stayed with Peter and his wife and his mother-in-law. He had to go across the lake to this area called Gergesa. Well, we'll see why, but he had divine appointments, and we already read it this morning. What were those divine appointments? Well, he delivered two men of demon possession. Wouldn't you say that's a divine appointment? These two men who had been tormented by demon spirits indwelling them, causing them to run around naked in the tombs along the eastern shore of the Galilee, out of their mind, foaming at the mouth. That's a divine appointment. And not only does he exercise the demons out of these men, but he also brings them to salvation. And they're completely in their right mind now. That is such a wonderful thing. And then secondly, it's also a reminder. He has a divine appointment to remind the demons, by the way, your day is coming. It's coming. And it's yet coming in the future us. We know that there's coming a time when the devil and the false prophet and the antichrist, the beast, they will all be cast into outer darkness, into the lake of fire, and the demons as well. Their time of torment is coming, but right now they are on this earth running amok, causing all kinds of havoc. And that's a very simplistic way to say, but that's the truth. I believe that everything that we see physically going on in our world is a result of some kind of spiritual backing when somebody runs their car through a parade of people having a good time, that is demonic. God is not directing. The Spirit of God is not directing that person to run that car through a crowd. No, that's the devil. He is the author of destruction. He is the destroyer. He is the author of everything unclean and unholy. He is. And Jesus... One of his divine appointments is to remind them, your, ta- your time is coming. And it is. And I'm looking forward to that day. And thirdly, the people of that area were now accountable after seeing all that God had done through these two men. And then these two men go into their villages and they share the one, what God had done for them. And many believe because of their witness. And so that is a divine appointment that's just kind of like exponentially going out like a ripple wave from what Jesus originally did in these two men. So divine appointments are happening. And he's going over there for them. And Satan loves to frustrate and prevent, if possible, divine appointments. Don't be surprised when you share with your family the scriptures or you share with them the gospel this Thanksgiving or around Christmas time. Don't be surprised if things get heated and sometimes they get tense. Because in fact, in this world, whenever you bring Jesus Christ or the word of God into any conversation, you're going to feel the resistance. How many of you feel the resistance when speaking with Christ? Actually, all of you should probably be raising your hand because there is, if we're honest, there's a resistance inside. Because the world has told us we don't want to hear about this Jesus. We don't believe in him. Well, tough. Because he's the God of glory. He's the one who created all things. He's, he created the terra firma that you're standing on. I think he deserves my worship and my adoration. Don't you agree? He deserves it. He deserves it. But you will sense that resistance because we live, as you know, in a very postmodern culture that doesn't believe in absolute truth. Well, if it works good for you, that's great. 
We live in a culture where anything goes, where the mantra is, if it feels good, do it. The workplaces, colleges, universities, hospitals, elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, many, if not most, have thrown Jesus to the curb. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. Yes, bring us critical race theory and bring us gender, you know, transgender theology, because it is a theology. It is a religion. And they're forcing it down our kids' necks and onto the parents as well. And they've kicked Christ to the curb. And then they wonder why things are so out of whack and why everything is going to hell in a handbasket. Well, it's because you reap what you sow. That's what the Bible says. You reap what you sow. You reap the whirlwind, you're going to reap destruction. And what is our country seeing right now? It's seeing it. It's seeing it. Some of the things that used to be not seen to the public eye are now out in front and very flagrant, and they, they promote it, they, they celebrate it. And these things are, ought not to be celebrated. But remember, as we look at this passage today, you're going to understand that there's a spiritual battle. In Ephesians 6, verse 11, Paul tells us this idea of that there is a, a, a battle. He says, put on, therefore, the whole armor of God. This is Ephesians 6, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle, notice, against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So there is a battle. And then Paul goes on to tell us how we are to arm ourselves. You know, with the, the helmet of salvation, the, the breastplate of righteousness, the, the girt about with the, 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 the spirit, you know, the um, girt about with the spirit of truth and having the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God in your hands and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. All of this armament that we are to put on because we are in a spiritual battle, whether we want to admit it or not. And Jesus was very aware of these forces of darkness and they opposed him as well notice in verse 24 and suddenly now a great tempest arose on the sea now the sea of galilee is actually a lake it's a lake it's not a, a saltwater body of water it's enclosed by land so therefore by definition it is a lake but that fresh water comes from mount hermon up to the north travels down through the upper jordan a river and tributaries going into ultimately the Sea of Galilee or the Lake Gennesaret or Lake Chinnereth. They're all names of, of this lake, Lake Tiberias. <clears throat> Suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea and notice the boat was covered with the waves. But he, Jesus, was asleep. Now, it's very interesting. I've been out on the Galilee three times and three different times in my life so far. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I can tell you, I've never seen this phenomena ha happen, but many have, where suddenly a tempest can rise very quickly. In fact, I'd like to read to you something. There's a gentleman by the name of W.M. Thompson who in 1857, he had been a missionary in Syria and in Palestine in that area for about 30 years. He wrote in his book called The Land and the Book, the following firsthand eyewitness account of the volatility of the Sea of Galilee. And he said this, he says, to understand the causes of this sudden and violent tempests, we must remember that the lake lies low, 600 feet below sea level. That the vast and naked plateaus of the Jalan rise to the great height spreading backward to the wilds of the Huron and upward to the snowy Mount Hermon. That the water courses have cut out profound ravines and wild gorges converging to the head of this lake. And that these act like gigantic funnels to draw down the cold winds from the mountain. And on the occasion referred to, we subsequently pitched our tents at the shore and remained for three days and nights exposed to this tremendous wind. We had to double pin all of the tent ropes and frequently we were obliged to hang on them with our whole weight upon them to keep the quivering tabernacle from being carried up bodily into the air." The whole lake, as we had it, was lashed into fury. The waves repeatedly rolled up to our tent door, tumbling over the ropes with such violence as to carry away the tent pins. And moreover, these winds are not only violent, but they come down suddenly and often when the sky is perfectly clear. 
I once went to swim near the hot baths, and before I was aware, a wind came rushing over the cliffs with such force that, I, that it was with great difficulty I could regain the shore. And so it is true, this, this lake can become very tempestuous very quickly because of all the mountains surrounding it and all of the ravines and the gorges all around it and the, the wind, when it comes through, it acts like a wind tunnel and that thing, that lake can just turn over immediately with, with very little warning. I'd like to share with you, uh, um, as you know, our tour to Israel is already full for next year in March. And, and many of you won't be able to go. I'm not, I won't even be able to go. But I wanted to bring Israel to you because I wanted to give you just an idea of what this lake looks like and give you some idea of the setting of what we are looking at today. In fact, um, this uh, map that I have on the screen, uh, there's a place called Ein Gen. It, it's down there uh, at the very bottom where the arrow begins. And we visit this place, and we take a boat, usually across the Galilee, back to Nof Ginesar, which is uh, Gennesaret, uh, near where Mary Magdalene was born. And we take that uh, boat over there. And I wanted to show you just a quick video of what this looks like on the boat. And so as we look at this, I want you to... No, there we go. The right side. So mountains all around. Now watch as we look at this. I'm going to zoom in on. I'm looking north now. And you're going to see off in the distance Mount Hermon. The snow-capped mountains of Mount Hermon. And then the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee is on this side. I'll focus here in just a minute. And all along this area, along the side here, many tombs. Even today, they're still there. And this place is called Ergesa, which we are going to look at. Pretty neat stuff. And so, so Jesus, it's actually a very beautiful place. But that is the setting of what happened as we're reading now. But notice in verse 25 that his disciples, he come, they come to him and they awoke him saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing because the lake is, is completely going crazy. And notice what woke Jesus up. Was it the storm that was causing the waves to lap into the boat? Was it the storm that woke Jesus up? No, it wasn't the storm. It was the cries of his, his disciples. He was perfectly asleep. If they, in fact, if they had just kept quiet, they would have gotten to the other side of the shore with no problem. But experienced fishermen as they were, they knew better. And they're thinking, Lord, you've got to do something or we're going to perish. And you know, you may be tempted to think that God doesn't care about you, that somehow he's unconcerned with, your, with what you're going through in your life, but that's not true. It's not true. We know that in Jeremiah 29, I love this verse, God says to Israel, but this verse applies to us as well, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a hope and a future. And then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And see, God does care. And when his disciples, when his people cry out to him, there is no other sound that God responds to more than the sound of his children crying out to him. And I love that because I cry out to him often. And so do you. They said, Lord, save us, we're perishing. And I love the only one who wasn't panicking was Jesus. He was in complete control. We need to remember that God is in control. And yes, a child of God, even going through difficulty, can have peace and grace even during times of the greatest calamity. You remember the three youths in the fiery furnace that Nebuchadnezzar had thrown in there. When they realized that Christ was in there with them, this fourth one who was like the Son of Man... Nebuchadnezzar actually had to call them out because they were very content being in the fire as long as they were with Christ. Because while they were with Christ, not a, not a, a, a fabric, not a, a piece of them was singed with the fire. Even the smoke of fire wasn't on them. They were very content being with him. 
And I love this. God is in control. I remember, you know, speaking about calamity, I remember in 2013 of July, we had the roof of this whole entire complex taken off. And I remember the day very clearly because um, all these places where you see that are silver above us had to be replaced. And so they had the whole roof exposed to the sunlight. It was supposed to be a really nice day. You know where I'm going with this. It was supposed to be a really nice day. And so uh, we're looking up, we're seeing sunlight, we got everything covered, and then in a moment we had a flash rain. And the rain was coming down so hard and so fast. I remember, I'll never forget this. Because just like Jesus, and again, I don't want to build Pastor Jeff up, but I, I learned something from him that day, and I saw something in him that wasn't in me, and that was just maturity, spiritual maturity. But we're growing, aren't we? But I saw him, you know, this plate, water was coming in like, like in buckets. The, the hallways on the side here and this, water was coming down the walls. We were in Noah's Ark. <laughs> this place was being diluted. I thought Genesis 7 was going to happen all over again. And yet, he's just walking around, very patiently, just putting buckets, you know, where he could, and he wasn't freaking out. Meanwhile, Pastor Billy and myself, we're running around like crazy men, trying to cover up things, and we're pulling our hair out. Water is literally coming down the walls on the other side of the, of the walls here, and it was just the most, it was the, one of the worst days of my life. And yet, he was just cool as a cucumber. He wasn't worried. <laughs> I was worried, but I looked at him and I'm like, wow, why aren't aren't you freaking out? And he's like, well, what can I do? I can't fix this. Why even get upset about it? The insurance is going to cover it. Or at least we'll sop up the water, paint, and we're done. We'll, We'll have to move on, you know? So I learned something about him, and I learned something about the Lord that day. Because Jeff just happened to be further along in this walk, obviously, than I am. And he had matured to such a place that I just wasn't at yet. And I'm growing, just like you are. And so we're all growing. We're all growing towards the Lord. But it was a moment I'll never forget because it reminded me of this passage when Jesus is sleeping. Meanwhile, the whole world is going to pot, it seems. And he's just very comfortable and he's not worried about it at all. And so Jesus said to them, notice verse 26, Why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? And then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Notice that there, here is another proof text that Jesus is the Messiah. Again, the Jews knew that if he was the Messiah, he would be able to do these things. The very same God who said in Genesis chapter 1, Let there be light. The very same God in Genesis 1 who said, let there be firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. The very same God who said, let there be, let the waters abound with abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. The same God who said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, cattle and creeping thing and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind. And then finally, the same God who would say let us make man in our own image according to our likeness let them have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air over the cattle over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth yes this same god who spoke all of those things and they obeyed they came into existence when there was nothing is the same god who stood up on this boat and rebuked the wind and it must obey him Why? Because he's the creator. He is the creator. He has the right, uh, being the creator, to speak and anything can and does happen. If you've got a terminal illness here this morning, God can, and he has spoken to people, and they have been healed dramatically, divinely, and even the doctors are shaking their heads and scratching. Some of you have been healed divinely. You know what I'm talking about. It is a very easy thing for God to just speak. And so why does he allow different things? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know why he allows certain things like this to happen. But I know it it challenges us, doesn't it? It gets us on our knees. It gets us dependent upon him, looking up to him, asking him questions and saying, Lord, I don't understand. 
I don't understand why I'm going through this. After all these years, I thought I was closer to you, and then you strike me, you allow me to be struck with cancer, or you allow me to be struck with something. And see, we don't always understand why God allows those things. But I do know one thing, it's for our good. He allows it to happen. He doesn't make it happen, but he allows it to happen. It's just part and parcel for life on this planet. But he loves. And he loves you. And he wants to draw you closer to him. So the same God who spoke all those things is the same one who does it here. And yet we... Nature must obey him, and yet us, the, the workmanship, the, 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 the capstone of his creation, man, we are the only ones who can say no. We are the only ones, when God wants, you know, has a plan and a will for our lives, we have the ability, and it's a scary thing, that we have this thing called will, you know, our own will. And he doesn't violate our will. He could if he wanted to, but then we'd be robots, but he makes us choose who we're going to serve. Am I going to serve myself? Am I going to serve the world? Or am I going to serve Christ? And, and you're either going to serve, uh, what was it, Bob Dylan wrote a song back in the 60s or 70s, I think it was in the 60s, you've got to serve somebody. You're either going to serve Satan or you're going to serve God. And Satan, he's got a pretty big umbrella under the things that, from him. If you serve yourself, you're serving Satan. If you're serving God, you're serving God. One or the other. But God can stop the mouths of lions, but he allows man this free will to obey or not to obey. And I don't know about you, but one thing that the Lord is doing and has done and is continuing to do with me is to break my will. Having the, uh, the human will broken is actually a very good thing because it's when it's broken that God can build me. And he has, and he continues to do so. And are you willing to be broken? Or are you so obstinate in what you want to do with your life that you're like, no, I am going to do this, and I'm, just, I'm digging my heels in, and I will not let you do this. And he will honor that. <laughs> he will say, if, if you really want that so bad, then I'm going to let you have it. I'll see you in a little while. Because when that thing, whatever it is, disappoints you and you realize there was nothing in it at all, it was just emptiness, then you'll come back to me and I'll gladly receive you. But sometimes I can be so stubborn. Unlike nature, when God wants nature to do something, it must obey him. It must obey him. And Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2 called Satan the prince of the power of the air. And it appears that Satan may be responsible for a lot of the calamities that we see in the world when it comes to destruction. And why do I say this? Well, what is the refrain in Genesis 1 after each day of creation? And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. When he created and God saw that it was good. In fact, after he created man on the sixth day, what did he say? It says in Genesis 1 verse 31, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth 24-hour day. Don't ever let anybody say that these days were eons of time. That's called theistic evolution. <laughs> no, they were 24-hour periods. God created all of these things in six days. And he created them in order. He created everything. And then the very last thing on the sixth day, he created man. Because in order to create man and put him on the earth, he had to create a place for him to stand on. He had to create water for him to drink. He had to create th uh, you know, uh, plants and stuff like that to eat. And he had to produce animals that could uh, furrow the rows and, and plant. He had to do all that. And then he put man on the earth. But sin had not entered the picture at that time. But Satan came along in Genesis 2 and 3. He's called the destroyer. His name is Abaddon, which means destroyer. He destroys things. But God is the creator. Do you see the difference? One creates, one tears down. And such is the case even today. God wants to bless his people. He wants to bless the earth. He's wanted to bless the earth. But man in his stubbornness has stuck his fist up in the sky and says, I will not have this man rule over me. 
And God will allow you to be governed by someone else. I love what it says in Colossians, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, he's speaking of Christ, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in the heaven and that are on the earth, visible, notice, and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him, Jesus Christ. They were created through him, and notice, and for him. They were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist, and he is the head of the body, the church. Are you excited about that? I am. He is the head of the body, the church, not the pope. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in him all things he might have the preeminence. It's all about Jesus. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Who was that? It was Christ. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all one, working in concert together in the creation account and in the redemption of man. All of them are the same and many times, as we see this passage, many times as Jesus and his disciples are crossing over to the other side of the lake, you better believe that Satan understood something. There's something going on over on the other side of the lake, and I want to prevent it from happening. <laughs> I want to prevent it from happening. In fact, many times Satan sought to destroy uh, Jesus and hinder his ministry in any way that he could. We know that during Jesus' 40-day temptation in the wilderness, what did it say in Matthew 4, verse 1? Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by who? The devil. And then in verse 5 it says, and then the devil took him into the holy city, which is Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the Son of God, or since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, and here he quotes the Psalms, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone." Jesus was nearly stoned to death in Nazareth by his own countrymen where he grew up, where he was born, his own hometown. And Satan works to resist, hinder, and destroy our ministries as well. Ministries all around this country. Why do you think so many large ministries in the church have pastors that have to step down because of an adulterous affair or because they've embezzled money or finances? Who's at play? Satan. He wants to destroy and diminish and to harm and to maim. The bigger the church, the greater target the enemy it is for the enemy. What does it say in Zechariah? It says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's why I ask for you to pray for myself and all the other pastors in this city, in this, in this area, and all the pastors on staff here at the church. Pray for them. Pray for us. We're nothing. But just because we are a pastor and we pastor a church, the devil will do anything he can to destroy it. And the target, the bullseye, is bigger on myself and my brothers. It's on you too. It's on you. Paul the Apostle himself was hindered by Satan. In Thessalonians it says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in present, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But notice, Satan hindered us. Yes, he is a hinderer. He is a destroyer. And here he was trying to, to hinder whatever Jesus wanted to do on that other side of the lake. He didn't even have a clue of what was going on because remember that Jesus God is the only one who is omniscient all-powerful all-knowing Satan is not any of those things he doesn't know what's happening next he knows certain things like you and I we know that the tribulation's coming in the future we know that Christ is going to return he knows what's in the Bible in fact he knows the Bible better than you and I that's why he quoted it to Jesus in the wilderness during his temptation. 
He quoted the scripture to him. Can you believe that? If I was Jesus, I would have chuckled and like, really? I thought you'd quote to me from, you know, like, um, you know, Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible or something, but you're quoting my own word to me. Good luck with that. But he did. Because <laughs> there's no other authority than the word of God. But I find it interesting that right before this exorcism of these two demon-possessed men, there is a storm that threatens them. And often before God is going to do something wonderful, and you know this because you've experienced it in your own life, there is often spiritual attack. But remember, Satan is not equal with Jesus. He is not equal. In Ezekiel... As Ezekiel is referring to the the power behind the, the throne of the king of Tyre, he says this. God speaks directly to Satan through this king. He says, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. Now, was the king of Tyre in Eden? No. Was the one who was... Calling the shots behind the king of Tyre? Was he in Eden? Oh, you better believe it. What's his name? Satan. He was there. So God is addressing not the king so much at that moment, but he's, he's talking to the power behind that throne. He says, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the turquoise, and emerald with gold. And notice, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Satan, Lucifer, is a created being, not equal with God like the Mormons believe. He is not equal with Jesus. He's a created being. Jesus is the uncreated one. He was never, he always existed. Isn't that what John's gospel tells us? Even before he was incarnate in the Virgin Mary, he existed prior He's the only transcendent one. So the men, verse 27, back in our text, they marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? The disciples' understanding, and we've seen this in other gospel accounts when we were looking at John, their understanding of Jesus was growing every moment. Just like ours is. Our understanding of who he is grows as we go. And God is okay with that. Because here's the deal, even though we can be impatient in our growth in the Lord, the Lord is patient with us, and he is in no big hurry. This process of sanctification takes time. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Isn't that what he told us in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13? But unfortunately, there's no shortcut to this process. It takes time. Because of our weakness, not because of God's limitations, but because of us. How long did God prepare Moses before he brought him into Egypt to deliver his people? How many years was it that God prepared Moses before he says, Abraham, I want you to go, or Moses, I'm sorry, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to deliver my people. Do you remember how many years? Eighty It took him 80 years. He was 40 years already in Egypt, being schooled by the very best schools under Pharaoh. And then he spent 40 years in the desert, chasing his father-in-law Jethro's sheep around the desert. And then God says, now you're ready. Now that I've gotten Egypt out of you, now I can take you and use you to bring my people out of Egypt. He was 80 years old when he started. When his ministry began, he was 80 years old. And what about David? Seven, at least seven years, maybe ten years, God was preparing David as Saul was hunting him down, chasing him around Israel, trying to kill him. And all that while, God was preparing him. God was preparing David. And so his disciples are also growing. They're also learning. So verse 28, when he had come to the other side, so remember Jesus went from the western side now to the eastern side to this place called the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men. Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel only tells us about one. 
but there were actually two. It doesn't mean that they're wrong or inaccurate. It's just that there was one guy specifically who was, had Jesus' attention more. He healed both of these men, but there was one of them who really just took to Christ and just didn't want to let him go. So notice, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass by that way. And notice that demons and the workings of Satan are always connected with death. Notice where they were. Were they in the nice houses? Did it say that two demons or two men possessed with demons came out of a really nice establishment? It was very nice. They had this whole veranda. No, it says that they came out of the tombs. They were naked and they came running out of the tombs because they were fierce. Satan is the prince of darkness. His ways are death. Everything about him is death. And it's no surprise that those who cater to him and believe in him and follow him, they are infatuated with the things of death. There's no surprise. Who's, con- who's controlling you? If you're a born-again believer, the Spirit of God controls you. But I've seen people in the world, and they, and they wouldn't say to me, well, I'm not demon-possessed, but they are clearly being oppressed. They are clearly being directed by some force, and it's not God. That's kind of a mystery, isn't it? What would cause a young man to go into the school of Uvalde, Texas, and shoot all of those kids? Not the Spirit of God, but the devil. And you better believe he was at work. The whole thing was demonic. So when he had come to the other side, to the place of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men. Now, other versions of the Bible, or I'm sorry, other um, Gospels, Mark or Luke, they may say Gadarenes or Gerasenes. Um, and unfortunately, uh, those are probably not the best names. There's, there's been some speculation on where this place actually resides, but a Gadarene was a resident of Gadara, which is one of the cities of the Decapolis. And if you uh, over in this area, you can see that there is a, um, oh, give me a second here. Over in this area in Gadara, that's nowhere near the Sea of Galilee, is it? It's, it's several miles away. And, and so uh, the Gergesenes or uh, Gergesa is the actual name of this location. And so that is actually the better of the uh, ways to look at this. The most reliable evidence is that it's actually located exactly where that arrow is. And today it's called Kersa or Kersa. These names kind of mingle a little bit and they change uh, spellings. But this is where, where that arrow is pointing. Right there on the eastern side is where this occurred. And topographically, this location makes sense because Gadara is out in the desert at the southern end of the Galilee. It didn't happen there. But Gergesa? Oh yeah, it happened there. And we visit this place. And in fact, um, I want to show you another video. The video that you're going to see... Oops, not yet. We're going around... We're starting in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee and we're traveling around a bus on the eastern side and all along this little red arrow, you're going to see uh, these tombs that are in the sides of the mountains. And there are some areas where they're more pronounced than others. And so this video that you're going to see, it's very short, but it shows you the topography of the land that fits this passage in the Bible very, very well. Because those pigs, after Jesus dismissed them out of the two men into this a herd of pigs, they ran violently down the hill and into the Sea of Galilee. You can't do that in Gadara, but you can do it here in Gargesa. And so we pass by this place, and so this is the place that you're going to see, and it's very interesting, and you'll see it on both sides of the bus, so let's just take a quick look at it. So there are the tombs up in the, and there's holes up there where they would hide, and they were all down even further back and now I'm going to go on the other side. You can see the animals, the livestock, and the steep cliff here. And that's where the sheep would be. And they would run 
all the way down onto the other side and perish into the Sea of Galilee. And that's where they would go, and that's where that happened. On that side of the lake, in that area, probably right in that area where this all happened. Pretty interesting. And suddenly notice, as they meet these men, they cry out and they say, You son of God, have you come here to torment us before the time? Notice two things. The demons knew who Jesus was. The demons knew who, the, who Jesus was when the religious leaders, the, the Jews, and even other people, they didn't know that even God exists. Many people don't believe that Satan exists. They don't believe that God exists. And boy, are they getting fooled. The demons knew who Jesus was. They just didn't worship him. They didn't obey him. And the demons knew that they were ultimately going to be judged. Notice those two points about that whole thing. In fact, Luke's gospel offers this after this event occurred where the two men came out. Luke's gospel says this, that Jesus asked one of the men, what is your name? And he said, Legion. Because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. And so legion, we know, a Roman legion is a thousand. So is it possible this man had a thousand demons in him? There were more than one and quite a, not, not a very happy crew, were they? Possessing this man. Do you believe this is just allegory? I don't believe it for a minute. These things really happened. These things really happened. Jesus said that to them. That spiritual world is very real around us. And so now, verse 30, a good way off from there, there was a herd of many swine feeding, and swine or pigs were considered unclean animals to the Jews. Now, whether the, the people on the eastern side of the lake were Jews or Gentiles, we really don't know. Very likely they were Gentiles, because it is, after all, Galilee of the Gentiles. So it very well could be. But if they were owned by Jews, what are, what are, what's a good Jew doing selling pig, selling pork and pork chops? Don't really know. But the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And typical of those under Satan's power, they wanted to embody something. And they were, they were bent on destruction. When Satan enters a person and they become demon-possessed, what is his intention to destroy that person? Now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot be possessed by Satan because there's one bigger than Satan on the throne of your heart. Follow me? So you don't need to worry about that as a Christian, but for anybody who doesn't know Christ, it is possible. I've met demon-possessed people, and they're pretty scary. And I've met others who are just oppressed by demons, I myself have been oppressed at times. And so have you. You know what that's like, but you haven't been possessed because the Spirit of God indwells you if you're a Christian. Notice, and he said to them, go. So he permitted them. So when they had come out of the two men, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine runs violently down the steep place into the sea. They perish in the water. Notice that even pigs don't tolerate anybody governing them. Even pigs don't. That's why God invented devil ham. I, I couldn't resist. You know, Thanksgiving's coming up. Have you had this stuff on a cracker, like those townhouse crackers? This stuff is great. See, now you're thinking about it, and you're going to probably go out and buy it at Wegmans this week. Deviled ham. I, I'm, I'm joking, obviously, but these pigs had the devil, devils in them, and they would not... Do you like the smirk? I think that was kind of cute. But they would not allow themselves to be inhabited by anything. And so what does the pig naturally do? He runs down the cliff into the, into the lake and he perishes. Such is the power of Satan, always wanting to destroy. It doesn't matter who it is, what it is, he wants to destroy. He wants to destroy people. And then those who kept them, they fled. And notice, they went into the city and they told everything, including what had happened to the two demon-possessed men. 
They told it in all the cities all around. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him, what? To stay and have lunch. We really love what you did here. No, they said, they begged him to depart. We want you out of here as soon as possible. Get out of Washington, D.C. We'll give you a plane ticket, a one-way plane ticket, out. Leave now, please. That's what they said. They weren't greeting Jesus. They weren't happy about the fact that these two men, he was bad for business. Jesus was bad for business. They didn't want someone hanging around and perhaps jeopardizing more of their herds, perhaps. And isn't it true that the natural man is more concerned about money and the temporal rather than the eternal? Their financial well-being was more important to them than the fact that these demon-possessed men are now in their right minds and delivered, and now they can be received back into their families and be useful members of society? Isn't that more important? And more importantly than that, they were believers now. (laughs) They were believers in Jesus. In fact, Mark's gospel, you won't find it here in Matthew, but in Mark's gospel it says this, and I love this. When Jesus got into the boat, he because after he had performed this, and, and drove the demons out, and the, and, the, and the deviled ham went down into the lake. It says that Jesus got into the boat, he who, and then he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him. And you know, think about this. This man had been roaming around naked, cutting himself with potsherds in the, in the tombs that we just saw some of the pictures of. And they're, they're doing all of this, and they're, and, and they're fierce. Nobody can be around them. And finally, they're delivered, and they're just like, oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for what you did to me. I owe everything that I am to you because no one wanted to be around us. No one wanted to be around me. I couldn't even control my temper. I couldn't even control my thoughts and you set me free. I owe you everything. And oh my goodness. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that the way you felt when you came to Christ, when you acknowledged your sin before God? Didn't that weight of sin and that burden of sin and guilt, didn't it just fall off you like scales? And very naturally, didn't it make you want to worship him and give thanks to him? It did for me. I want to serve him all my life. I want to do what he wants me to do. And I want to serve him well. And I want to have a life that means something. Don't you? Can I get an amen in the house? I mean, only if you mean it, of course. Yes, we want him. We want, we want to serve him, right? Right? And, but notice, Jesus forbade him, and he said to him, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home, notice, to your friends, and tell them, notice, tell them, and this is what a witness does, tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has shown compassion on you, has had compassion on you. And he departed the man did, and began to proclaim in Decapolis. Those are the Roman cities all around the area. There were 10 of them. He departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and they all marveled. This man not only gets delivered from demons, but now he's born again, and now he is a witnessing machine. Because how can you deny what has happened to you? Right? How can you deny what has happened to you? I can't deny it. It's very real. It's more real than the stage that I'm standing on. And nobody can convince me otherwise. Before I came to Christ, I was a wretch. I still am a wretch, but I'm forgiven. But I was a wretch. I was really a wretch. Doing my own thing. And such were some of you, right? All of us. Before we came to Christ, we lived lives that were just shameful if we were to go around and say, well, tell us a little bit about your past. Well, I was a drug addict. I slept around a lot, and I had this disease. We could go around to the room, and I embezzled funds. I did this, and horrible things. I was in jail. I was in Sing Sing for four years. And now look what God has done. He's gotten a hold of our lives. Now our lives really mean something. Our lives are actually a force for good in this world. And God wants you and I, just like this man who was delivered from the demon, he wants us to go out and to share that love of God, how God has had compassion on us. He's had compassion on me and you. What greater news is that? 
It's true. And gratitude, finally, and we'll take communion here in just a minute. You, the worship team could come on up um, while I share this last thing. Uh, gratitude is something that is really becoming for saints of God, you and I. What does Romans 12 tell us? It says, I beseech you, Paul says to the Romans, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies, notice, a living sacrifice. God doesn't want you to die for him. He died for you. He wants us to be living sacrifices. Notice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is, notice, your reasonable service. It's very reasonable for the man who was demon-possessed, now delivered, on his way to glory. It's very natural for him to say, I am yours, and whatever you want me to do, I will do. And it was very natural for us too, right? To say, Lord, whatever it is you want to do with my life, I am all yours. I surrender it all at your feet. I wanted to do something different with my life, and God intervened. And I wouldn't be here if God didn't intervene. And you're probably thinking, I wish he would have. (laughs) I'm only kidding, of course. But he intervened in my life. He intervened in your life. Made something better than I could have ever planned for myself. Right? Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you do that? You read the word of God. You be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And it is very appropriate for us to present our bodies, notice, as a living sacrifice for our time here on earth is very short. And Jesus died to give us eternity with him. So what's a very short 70, 80, 90, 100 years, if I'm fortunate, of my life compared to eternity that he purchased for me? It's a very reasonable sacrifice, a reasonable living sacrifice for this time that I'm here on this earth compared to what he died to preserve for me, which is eternity with him. It can't even be measured. This life is like a, what does the Bible tell us? It's like a, a, a breath. It's like a breath. And so as we consider that, that Jesus purchased for us with his own blood on the cross, bearing the punishment for my sin and for your sin. So willingly he did this, fulfilling all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. He did that to secure a place for you and me at his table and to secure a place for eternity in heaven. And there's only one way we can get to heaven, and it's not through giving more money. It's not through uh, anything else. It is by believing in Jesus Christ. He is the only one. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says for us that the same night that Jesus was betrayed, uh, there at the Last Supper, he did something different after the Passover meal. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And remember, Jesus spoke this before it even occurred. He spoke this idea of his body being broken when it hadn't even been broken yet, but he knew that just hours from that moment that they would take the flagellum And they would open his back with several lashes of the flagellum. His body was certainly broken for us. And he knew it was coming and he didn't shrink back from it. In fact, it was for this purpose that he came into the world to pay the price, the penalty for sin that you and I deserve. And he did that on the cross for you and I. And so his body was broken. And he says, take, eat, and this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So these are just tokens of remembering what he had done for us. And so let's take it. And by taking this bread and taking this cup, what we are confessing is, Lord, I believe that you are who you said you were. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. I believe that you are my Savior. And then notice what he did. 
In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant or the new testament, literally. The new testament in my blood. This do, as often as you do, drink it. Do it in remembrance of me. And so let's do that. The precious blood of Jesus Christ shed for you and me. What an awesome thing. And how could we ever give thanks to him? I mean, think about it. What can I do? What can you do to thank God for what he has done so willingly, so freely for me and you? And you know, God doesn't require us to do anything that we might think. But you know what he does require us to do? To love him. Just to love him. And what do you do out of an act of love? If you really love somebody, do, do you just tell somebody that you love them but don't show it in practical ways? No, when you truly love somebody, you will sacrifice things that are important to you to benefit the other. That's what love is. Love is not just a feeling. It's great when the feelings are there. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing like, you know, in the, in the bonds of marriage, real passion and all the fireworks and all that. That's all good and, and fair. It is fair, right? You guys awake? Yes, it is. But love is a decision of the heart. It's a choice that I make in my heart that I am going to love and I'm going to purpose to do everything I can to bless this other, to do something other to someone else. That's what love is. And that's what Jesus did for us. So as a result of what he has purchased for us and made available to us by his blood on the cross, it's a very reasonable thing for then for me to give my life to him. It's very reasonable. It makes sense, actually. And in fact, if I don't, what I'm, <laughs> what I'm basically saying is, I, I'm not really that grateful. Now, don't get me wrong. You don't have to be in full-time ministry to serve God. Wherever you are in your life, regardless of where you're at in your job, your workplace, believe me, those places need the light of Christ. If you're a CPA, if you're a banker, if you're a construction worker, it doesn't matter what it is that you do, you can be a light to those people around you, and God wants you there. But be willing to be a light. Are you willing to be a light after all that he has done for you? And I don't mean to shame anybody here, but, I, but I'm just thinking, just think of it practically. If he's done all this for me, the least I can do is give my heart and my life to him completely. So I wake up every day and say, Lord, your will be done today. I don't even know what this day is going to look like, but you've already seen this day happen. And I want to be, I want to do what you want me to do. Let's stand and let's pray. Lord, we do pray that each one of us today, Lord, just because it is our reasonable service to you, Lord, to give our lives completely to you, Lord, to take our dreams, Lord, our aspirations, Lord, anything that we have uh, grown up to want or desire, Lord, help us to be willing, Lord, not, not that you'll take it from us ever, but let us be willing to say, Lord, is there a different place, is there a different trajectory of my life that you want to take now? And Lord, to give you the freedom to do that. Lord, you did it in my life. I had plans. I wanted to go, I wanted to do something completely different. I ran away from you for a long time. I'm so thankful that you intervened in my life and in my brother's and sister's life. So again, Lord, just have your way with us today. And may we just love you and be loved by you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.